Today's, today's sermon is called Meaning in the Meaninglessness, and it is based on the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about the search for meaning in life. Now, one of my favorite writers, Douglas Adams, who, if you are below the age of 12, I would not recommend you start reading just yet, was, had wrote a famous story called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And as you can tell from the title, it's a very silly story. But at one point, it echoes the universal hunger for meaning in a meaningless world. You see, a race of aliens builds a computer with the hope of finding the answer to life, the universe, and everything. They really want to know what it is. And they spend, and this computer takes six or seven million years to work out its program. And so they're so excited on the day when the computer is set to give its answer. There's a huge festival in the streets, there's banners waving, there's, and there's two philosophers whose job it is to receive the answer. And even though they've been trained since birth for this moment, oh, they're so excited. And slowly, the computer, whose name is Deep Thought, comes on. And the philosophers ask, do you have an answer? Deep Thought says with majestic calm, yes, I have but I don't think you're going to like it. The philosophers say, we don't care, we want to hear it. I really don't think you're going to like it. Just tell us, we've been waiting for six or seven million years. All right, but you're really not going to like it. The answer is, yes, to life, yes, the universe, Yes, and everything is 42. 42. The philosophers were deeply disappointed because it didn't answer all their questions about life, the universe, and everything. The computer, of course, brought up a good point that they never articulated a question. They never said what the question is to life, the universe, and everything. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher comes to an answer about the meaning of life that feels almost as meaningless as 42. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 1, or turn it with me in your notes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, most likely Solomon, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's a puzzling thing. Why would, why would a man of God consider life to be totally meaningless? Why would he give an answer that feels as empty as 42? Meaningless. 
Well, you've got to understand that the word there is hevel. Can you say the word hevel? It comes out really fast, doesn't it? Like a breath. Well, that's what it means, is breath. And it means, it means something like vanity. That's how some translations do it. But it also means it has a connotation of being very temporary. Hevel. You hear how fast that comes out. It doesn't last very long. In fact, in the book of Genesis, Cain and Abel, Abel's name is based off of the word Hevel because his life is so brief and is cut short by his brother. So what the teacher is really saying here is that everything is temporary. Temporary. Now, temporary doesn't necessarily mean meaningless in the strictest sense, but it does mean that it all vanishes. This is why some people find Ecclesiastes to be a very bleak, very depressing book, and some people think that Solomon had depression when he wrote it. But he has a point. What in our lives isn't temporary? It says in verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. All of them are temporarily, temporary. A chasing after the wind. So, I've decided we would take a tour through the things that the teacher saw and found meaningless. The first thing he explores is wisdom, because he is, after all, the wisest man who ever lived. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too was a chasing after the wind. Wisdom? How can wisdom be a chasing after the wind? When we hear the word wisdom, don't we think of, of ancient sages whose words still live on? When we think of wisdom, don't we think of the aged among us who give us the benefit of their years of life experience? Isn't wisdom those, corner, those cornerstone things that we consider eternal principles? But here's what Solomon says about wisdom. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Wisdom in the Bible wasn't about abstract principles. Wisdom was about practical living. Wisdom was about the sort of things that your grandmother tells you to help you get by when you're young and you don't know what you're doing. It's very, a very useful gift, but one that is temporary. Solomon also talks about wisdom in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? 
I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. This is what renders wisdom temporary or meaningless. Let's say you have two people. One does the right things their entire life. They live wisely, they raise a family, and they live to see four generations and see that they too walk in the ways of God. Then on the other hand, you have someone who never comes to God, lives just as long, spends their whole time wasting their life on selfish pursuits, they both end up in the same graveyard next to each other. You can see why people consider this book so grim. I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. So then Solomon goes off the rails a bit. He starts out his life so wise, and then he goes off the rails trying to figure out, okay, if wisdom doesn't give me the answer to life, the universe, and everything, then maybe, just maybe, the fools are doing something right. So he applies himself next to pleasure. For that, we turn back to the beginning of chapter 2. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. All kinds of pleasure, both good and evil, are temporary, right? I've been reading about the Danish concept of hygge, spelled H-Y-G-G-E. Can you say that, hygge? It's all about the kind of pleasure that you get from a cup of hot chocolate next to a candle in your living room on a rainy day. Does that sound nice? Yeah. It's all about the laughter you enjoy with a circle of friends in a, in a low pool of light on a dark night when it's stormy outside. As you can tell, the Danish have a lot of weather. Huga is all about the fellowship you get with friends when you go to the beach on a summer's day and just sit back afterwards and soak in the sunset. Huga is all about taking pleasure in the small fleeting things of life. Is there anything wrong with that? No. But it is fleeting. One book I read about Huga said that this is a part of a part of what Huga is all about is recognizing that these pleasures are fleeting, so taking the time to enjoy them while they're there, knowing that they won't always be there. Everything we do is so temporary that any time we come across a moment of pleasure, it is to be enjoyed, savored in those quiet moments. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? 
Oh, and here Solomon really goes off the rails. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Then he starts doing some things that sound like work to us, but in the ancient world would have sounded like pleasure. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I imagined that his houses and vineyards looked like the stuff you see in Sunset Magazine. Any of you seen those? Yeah, beautiful, gorgeous homes. Also, you see these what beautiful, beautiful homes on Pinterest, and you're like, oh, I want that hot tub that overlooks the ocean. You know what I'm talking about if you're on there. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. In all this, his wisdom stayed with him, though I'm not sure how, especially if he was drinking as much as he said he was. But he basically becomes the equivalent of a celebrity. Do you ever look at, through the covers of, I don't know, People Magazine or, no, you guys don't read People Magazine, right? Maybe you glance at it in the grocery checkout line and ever wonder, man, if I could just have their wealth, I would do, I would do so much better with it than they would. Or, you ever even just have a particularly rich friend or neighbor and wish, ah, if I were a rich man. <laughs> I love what, Ted, what Tevye says, if riches are a curse, then smite me with them. But this too turns out to be meaningless. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Pleasure turned out to be meaningless because it was fleeting. And he also talked about the pleasure of achievement. How many students do we have in the audience, in the congregation today? Any high achievers who really, really love their A's? We all want A's, don't we? This too is meaningless. It's a good thing to have A's, but the pleasure of getting an A is only temporary because then there's another quarter there's another class, there's another, there's another chapter of life demanding your attention. All right, so the next thing that Solomon tries is toil, what we would call work. 
And for that, we go to chapter 2, verses 17 through 26. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. My father told me a story once about a music teacher who had carefully built up a costume library for his, for his programs, neatly cataloged, all in, all in neat rows and numbered so that they could rent them out to the students without losing any of them. And then his successor neglected it until the, these costumes were just willy-nilly on the floor in piles. All of that music, that first music teacher's work that they had done in building up this costume library turned out to be meaningless. And it was sad. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over the work which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. <clears throat> work is a huge part of our lives, especially here in America. We work at least 40 hours a week, most of us. And... It can be very tempting, especially here in America, to confuse work with our identities. To invest so much of ourselves into it that we cannot see the difference between ourselves and our work. But this too is meaningless because everything you strive to build, everything you toil so hard at, whatever your profession may be, will eventually be succeeded by someone else. In the world of work, everyone is eventually replaceable because they have to be, because the machine has to keep on turning. The world has to keep on turning with or without you. This too is meaningless. Solomon offers a nice bright little interlude there that I wasn't originally going to share with you, but I'm seeing your faces and I'm thinking we could use a little bit of a bright spot from the despair just now. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness, but to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, temporary, a chasing after the wind. But what Solomon is saying here is that it's good to enjoy your work, to enjoy it even though it is temporary and meaningless. Well, 
The next thing that Solomon talks about at length is riches. And we talked about that a little bit when we were talking about pleasure. And it's hard to talk about pleasure without talking about riches because some pleasures you just can't afford without riches. I don't know what your... I I love asking people, if you were crazy rich, what would you do with the money? What would be the the biggest stupid rich person thing you would do? Give it all away? I always said that I would build a huge aquarium in my library and keep a beluga in it. And light it with pretty colors. Because the beluga's white and it would catch the light and it would be really pretty. But that would be the, that would be the stupidest rich person thing I would do. But you would have to have insane wealth to do that. You would have to have billions to be able to do that just for your library. Not to mention all the books in the library, which cost a good, a good pretty penny. Pleasure often costs money. What I love about the Danish and their whole concept of huga is that they focus on the pleasures that don't cost as much money to enjoy. Things like a cup of hot chocolate. How much is that? 50 cents? Most of us can afford that. But Solomon has the wealth to see whether being rich really does make a difference. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields." And Solomon was that king who profited. And then he says something really interesting about those who are not a little wealthy. I mean really wealthy. It's easy for those of us who are mm, middle class, lower middle class, to look at those who make, say, 200,000 a year and go, ah, you're rich, I hate you. But they're not the ones ones that, that really mess up the economy. We're talking those who measure their wealth in the billions so that they don't actually spread it around anymore. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The really wealthy, and I mean the truly wealthy, have problems that we can't imagine. And I'm talking practical problems like actually keeping track of how much money is coming in keeping track of where to give it away, how to give it away, and how to to raise their children not to lose it all. Wealth is temporary. Wealth is meaningless. But that doesn't mean we can't enjoy our labor that produces wealth. So finally, 
Solomon gets to observe one thing that really hits us in the gut, especially this weekend because it's Mother's Day. He talks about children. And the whole, this weekend is all about the joy of celebrating our mothers and how much they do for us, how much they invest in raising us. That's a crazy responsibility, taking this tiny human being who is totally dependent on you for everything and raising them to adulthood. It's a very emotional journey. And I have so much respect for every mother in this room for taking it on. Oh, and I researched childbirth for a sermon on Mary once. Hats off to you ladies. That is, that is hard. <laughs> that is something unimaginably hard for those of us who haven't been through it. <laughs> I, read, I, I researched for that sermon and then I never wanted to have children of my own because it sounded so scary. <laughs> But you do it because you love that child that's being born, right? And you invest so much into them. You love them. I've heard that there's no other love on this earth that is as strong as that that a mother has for her child. I think my dad would contest that and say that he loves me just as my mother does. But he's a very special father. So Solomon talks about children. He says, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Do not all go to the same place. You see, children were very important in the Hebrew culture, and they still are in Jewish culture today because the idea was that your name lived on through your children, that your memory lives on through your children, and everything you are is passed on through your children. And if you were blessed by God, you had plenty of children. But what Solomon is saying here is that no matter how many children you have, and no matter how long you live, eventually it will run out. And that's where we get to the most depressing truth in the book of Ecclesiastes. Can you handle this? Are you ready for this? This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. 
Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Everybody dies. This is... This is such a depressing passage that one Bible I had when I was a kid said that this only reflects Solomon's exhausted opinion and does not reflect the actual truth of the matter. But the truth is that this will be our fate eventually. All of us, rich and poor, with children and childless, all of us, whether we enjoyed our lives or not, whether we accomplished great things at work or not, our fellow travelers to the grave, as Charles Dickens put it in Christmas Carol. We are all fellow travelers to the grave. And for that reason, life itself is temporary. Or as my translation puts it, meaningless. But Solomon doesn't leave us there. He goes on for a couple of more chapters about how depressing everything is. And I wouldn't be surprised if he really were depressed when he wrote Ecclesiastes. I mean, really. And then in the last chapter, in chapter 12, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the window grow dim, when the doors closed in the street are closed, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. When men rise up at the sound of the birds, but all their songs grow faint. These are all signs of aging. I could go through each one and explain it to you, but then we'd be here all afternoon. But when it says when the grinders are few, it's talking about how we lose our teeth. Um, when you get up at the sound of the birds, you'll notice that a lot of elderly people get up early. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, or the wheel is broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. He says, remember your creator before you die. So what is it? What is it about remembering our creator that's so important if life is meaningless. If life is meaningless, why should, if life is temporary and life is meaningless, why should we go to all the trouble, all of the, all of the conscientiousness of living life considering a creator? Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God brings every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. 
God gives life meaning. This is the light at the end of the tunnel here. That while it may not matter in the grand scheme of human history what your one single life accomplishes, God sees it. In the Quran, it makes a big deal out of God seeing everything you do. And sometimes I think of that in a spooky way. Like, oh, Santa Claus, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. But in reality, it's an affirmation of our lives. From a human perspective, what we do is temporary and meaningless. But from God's perspective, it matters. The judgment isn't something to be feared. The judgment is something to be celebrated because if God takes the time to judge our deeds, it means that our deeds matter to him, that what, what we do matters to him, that we matter to him. We matter to God more than anything else. Do you want to know the answer to life, the universe, and everything? God put us here for no greater or less reason than the fact that he just loves us and wants us around. God created us to enjoy us. And what gives our life meaning is not anything we do, any project we accomplish, any riches we acquire, any children we raise, as important as children are. What gives our lives meaning is that God sees everything we do. That God, that God cares about what happens to us. And death is not the end. Everything is not temporary. Everything is not meaningless. Because at the sound of the last trumpet, the dead will rise and meet Jesus in the air. There is an eternity to enjoy God and for him to enjoy us, for him to be our God and us to be his people, to live with him and to find meaning in our relationship with God. I would like to challenge you, if you are struggling with meaning of life type issues, to struggle no more. Relax. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's about God's all-encompassing love for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving meaning to our lives. Thank you so much that because of you, everything is not meaningless. Everything is not temporary. Thank you that through you we live on, that you will someday resurrect us, and that until you do, we live on in your memory. 
you will never forget us or forsake us. Thank you so much for giving us hope beyond the grave, hope beyond the temporary nature of life, and bringing us close to you to live with you in heaven someday. In Jesus' name, amen. Under the law of gradual growth that reigns in all created life, God will do everything in His power to answer a man's prayer. perfect timing a child wants to pick the half ripe fruit but he must wait until it's ripe to eat God will do everything in his power to answer a man timing. 